Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Galatians chapter 5. I am so glad that we're finally getting to verse 22 and 23 of Galatians 5. Man, it's been tough going through 19 through 21. I'm glad we're here. Paul has shown us very clearly that when one exchanges the truth of Christ living in us, living grace, when we, when we exchange that truth for working for him, in other words, that religious mindset, then we've just bought the whole package of the flesh. As we've learned, the Galatians never set out to be bad people. They didn't set out to do these things, but flesh is flesh. It's got a religious side to it, and sometimes that's the deceitful part of it. Well, one of these things begin to, or all of these things begin to bombard us once that choice has been made. Sexual deception, as we've seen, superstitious deception, social deception, sensual deception. All of these are products of the package of the flesh. It doesn't mean that you're involved in all of these things at one time. It just means that these are the traps now opened up to us when we choose the flesh. Well, Paul, under the inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit, has painted for us a horrid black backdrop in which now we can build. Now, it's, it's ugly. It's not good to look at. However, it's useful. You see, in doing so, by creating this black backdrop of what the flesh produces, he now is ready to contrast the beauty of what God wants to do, the brilliance of what God wants to produce in our life. When I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we had a jeweler that was in our church. And he came to me one day as I was attempting to try to explain the, the difference and the contrast. And he said, Wayne, it's so simple. He said, a jeweler knows that if you're going to enhance a beautiful stone, you get the blackest black that you can find. I don't know what, the, I don't know how you get any blacker than black, but he said, get black on black. I mean, just as black as you can get it. And you set it up. And then he said, you take your stone and put it up against it and take the brightest light you can find and shine it on that stone. And he said, the blackness of that backdrop will enhance the beauty of that stone. That's exactly what Paul's doing. What a contrast he's drawn for us in verse 19 through 21 and now verse 22 and verse 23. Let me read them for you and just listen to the contrast. Listen to how the brilliance stands out of what God produces when we walk by the Spirit. Verse 19 through 21 talks about the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now listen to them. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and then he says, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Not very pretty. But look at the contrast. But the fruit, in verse 22, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against which there's, such there's no law. See the contrast? It's so beautiful when we walk by the Spirit what God produces in our life as, in contrast to what the flesh produces. When the deeds of the flesh are put up next to the fruit of God's Spirit, really, they appear pitiful. The first thing we want to notice in verse 22, when he says the fruit of the Spirit, is that little word, fruit. 
Now, that little word fruit is the word karpos. It's that which originates from something. It's, it's the particular consequence of a certain source, and that's what he's talking about. Years ago, I was in the ACA, American Camping Association. I was one of the 11 ministers in the, in the nation. <laughs> wow, Wayne. That was an instructor in this organization. That's my kind of thing, and that's what I like to do. We had to go through all kinds of tests to, to pass, to get into our instructorship in that thing. And one of the things was a survival week in Arkansas. And they, part of the survival was they put me in a pup tent with a 6'8 guy named Bobby Shiles, who was an All-American all at Mississippi State University. Now, to put two of us into a pup tent that was made for people 5'5 five, five and under, that was part of the survival right there. Getting in the tent was one thing. Getting out of the tent was another. <laughs> that, everybody got up early to watch to see how we got out of the tent. We wore the tent. We didn't sleep in it. But one of the things we had to do was to identify different kinds of trees. I think there was about 20, 15 or 20. I'm not real good at that. And you had to bring the bark back and explain what kind of tree it was by showing the bark. Well, I had done about 19, whatever the number was. I was right up next. I had one more left, and I couldn't find one. I, I couldn't. If I found one, I didn't know what it was. And I topped a hill, and I looked, and thank you, Lord, thank you. I saw an apple tree. Now, how do you think I knew it was an apple tree? <laughs> There's an apple hanging there on the, on the And I went over and I got some bark, but I also pulled the apple off and stuck it in my pocket because I had a feeling that was going to come up later on. And I walked back and identified each one of the barks that I had and finally got to that last one. I said, that's an apple tree. And the instructor, knowing me, he said, what kind? And I reached in my pocket and pulled out the apple. I said, that kind. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, specifically what kind that was. But that particular tree put out that specific brand of apple. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He says the source of this fruit, the source of it, the particular fruit that's being talked about in Galatians 5.22, the source is the Holy Spirit of God. He says the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit that Paul speaks of is what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. Now, listen, and it's that which we could not, we cannot, we could never produce ourselves. You see, the, the world has this idea of love, but what God is going to show us is what He creates is on such a unique level above anything that could ever think about that it automatically shows it's, it's specifically produced by the Spirit of God. Now, another thing to, to notice in this verse is the word fruit is singular, singular. In other words, what Paul is explaining here in verse 22 and 23 is that all nine characteristics that are mentioned here are in a cluster. Now, what does you mean, Wayne? It means you can't have one without having the other eight. If one's missing, you don't have any of them. They all have to be there at one time. Now, this is different than the deeds, plural, of the flesh. Because you might be suffering from the trap of immorality or the suffering from the trap of this or that. It doesn't mean you're suffering from it all at one time. But here, if you have the fruit produced in your life, everything must be there. If anything's missing, it's not there. Now, we must remember the thrust of this epistle. And the key verse of the whole epistle is chapter 2 and verse 20 of Galatians. He says, I have been crucified. How? with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but what is, what is the key? Who, who lives it? Christ. Where does he live? In me. 
Now, Christ in the person of his spirit, now listen carefully, lives in us to produce his character in us so that others, others might not see us, but they would see him. All nine of these characteristics, the fruit mentioned in verse 22 and 23, reflect him in our lives. It's his character. It's who he is. These are not just qualities. This is Christ that lives in us. This cluster, this fruit that he produces in us is his character reproduced in our lives. As we seek to walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? Willingly led by the Spirit. Then the fruit is Christ living in and through us. Now make certain you understand. There's a couple of things we've got before we get into the text. I want to make sure you understand. First of all, the flesh cannot produce this fruit. Because many of you are going to say, love? Well, I love. Well, now wait a minute. What we're going to talk about is love that you could begin to touch in a minute. This is what God produces in you. Well, I have joy. (laughs) It's not a frivolous thing. This is something only God can produce in your life. And then secondly, we're only going to look at three today. Some of you are going to walk out of here and say, hot dog, man, it's happening in my life. Careful. There are six more that we're going to look at later on. Make sure all nine of them are there. If one is missing, just one, then you don't have it. You've been deceived. Only God can produce his own character in our life. And you can't separate the attributes of God at any one time. So if one is there, they all have to be in place. Okay, let's begin. Let's dig into this and just see what God has to say to us to encourage our hearts. First of all, the essence of this fruit is love. The essence of this fruit is love. That's, that's what he's talking about. The, it, the, the, the whole list is built off of that first word. When Paul or Peter make a list, always look at that first word that they mention, because in every list, that sets the tone for the rest of it. It is this love that fulfills the requirement of God's law. Did you know that? If you're worried about the law, just quit worrying about it. Walk by the Spirit, it's taken care of. Look in chapter 5 and verse 14, Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in how many words? One word. One word. And he gives you a phrase to give you a clue as to what that one word is. He says, for, for the, in the statement, you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the one word that fulfills the law? Love. And it's this love that he produces that literally fulfills the law that he requires. This love that he is required by the law can only be fulfilled by the one who gave the law and the one who came as the God-man and fulfilled the law and now lives within us. You see, when it's Christ living his life in and through you, then his law is being fulfilled because he's the one who's producing the love that fulfills that law. Now, the word love here is a very powerful, powerful word. It's the word agape. You may have heard that word before, the word agape. Agape does not describe a feeling or an emotion. It describes a choice, a resolve. Uh, We're too prone to listen to Nashville. When Nashville says, falling in love with you, you know, we we think that love, we we, we grow up thinking this way. We think it's an emotion. Well, it may involve emotion, but that's not the root of the meaning. The meaning is we've made a resolve, a choice, a choice. It's not a feeling. The word agape refers to the resolve God produces in us 
that causes us to want to do for our brother or sister in Christ spiritually that which is best for them no matter what it costs us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love hath no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest example, and he is that example. There's none that compare. Jesus, by dying on the cross, was the greatest example of the resolve and of the follow-through of this kind of love. This love is not necessarily what others may want have done for them, but it's definitely what they need. Now, this is important. It's only within this love. Now think, now, think with me. It's only within this love, when you're operating in the power of the Spirit, that you even know what the need of somebody else is. Do you realize if you're not walking by the Spirit, you don't really know what the needs of somebody else is? You think you do, but you don't. Only the Spirit of God. If He gives you the resolve to meet the need and then enables you to do it, then He's got to give you the discernment to know what that need is to begin with. So no committee, unless they're surrendered to Christ and on their face before God, can ever begin to discern the needs of anybody. Only God knows the needs. Now, you see, felt needs are everywhere. And this is the trap that a lot of people fall into, trying to minister to felt needs. No, sir. Felt needs are not real needs. Real needs are what only God knows, and only, only He can give us that discernment to understand. When one resolves in their hearts to spiritually do what is necessary and needed in another person's life, and he has within him that resolve to carry it through no matter what it costs him, that's a totally foreign concept to our flesh. Our flesh doesn't think that way. What we do is what's best for us, never what's best for somebody else. When it's present, when this love is present in a person's life, it can never point to them. It has to point to God who lives in them. So many people have asked me since I've been here, Wayne, how can I know? I really hear what you're saying. How can I know that I'm experiencing Christ in my life? How can I know that it's not me, but it's Christ living in and through me? This is the evidence. This is the only evidence. This is the clearest evidence that he's living in through us when we love, in the sense we've just described it, one another. Now, John, in his epistle, 1 John, tells us quite a bit about this love. He shows us clearly that this agape love is the character of God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, The one who does not love, what? Does not know God. For God is what? Love. He is love. Now, you think about that. He's not like love. He is love. He is the divine resource of what we're talking about here in Galatians 5. So in contrast, he says the one who does not love does not know God. The word know means, is gnosko, which means does not know him by experience. So in contrast, the one who does love, in the truest sense of what we've just described the word, is one who is experiencing God in his life. So how do you know you're walking in the Spirit? How do you know this, that God is replacing you with Himself? It's when this love permeates and motivates and surrounds you and, and, and initiates what you do in life. It's when, when He gives you that divine discernment as to the need of somebody and then gives you that grace and that enablement to, to, to meet that need and then to follow through with it. Well, as we've said before, Christ is the truest example of this love. You, nobody can touch him in being the example of that love for he is love 
in 1 John 4, 9, he says, by, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now that last phrase is what I want to capitalize on, that we might live through him. He came that we might have his life and his love in us. Is that not incredible? Remember the life inside the coat? Do I have to do that again? <laughs> the coat, is, is, it cannot do anything of itself, but when you put it on, there's life inside of the coat. He came that we might live through him. And that little word through is a little word dia. And dia means by the means of him. He is the source. He is our resource. He's the well that we drink from. He's our divine resource. Now, in verse 12, John shows us that when we are experiencing him, when we're living by the means of him, we will love one another. I mean, that's not, it, it just happens. That's just the way it's going to happen. And this is the way we know that God abides in us. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Then John ties this love to the Holy Spirit of God. And he does it this way. He says in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now it is this love, God's very love, that Jesus prayed to the Father would be in us. Do you realize that? Do you realize we're an answer to God of Christ's prayer to his Father? In, in, in John 17, every time we see this love manifested in our life, we're an answer to his prayer. John 17, 26, Jesus praying to his Father, and he says, I have made known your name. I have made your name known to them, and you make, will make it known so that, the, look at this, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The very love with which the Father loved Jesus, the same love which he loved the world, the same love that Jesus demonstrated when he went to the cross is now in us because he is in us. So it's not just a quality, it's not just a quality, it's who he is. So the way we know that Christ is living his life in us, the way we know that we are participating in his life is that we experience his love for each other by choosing to buy into the lie of the false teachers which the Galatians did the Galatians did it the Galatians no longer experienced the love they once had for one another that's a sad thing by a simple choice to do things their way they no longer experienced that love that they could have for one another let me ask you a question that's just why we're sitting here together how many times in your family in your life have you chosen your flesh and all of a sudden the love just went out the window has anybody experienced that besides me? Would you just raise your hand if you've experienced that besides me? Is that not a, is that not a, a, a terrible thing? When here it is that God has offered us that, and he says, listen, you can experience this, and by a simple choice, we choose to shut it down, and as a result, we don't sense that intimacy and that oneness and what God wants to give to us. Instead, as we have just studied, we sense enmities, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. They could have experienced the fruit of his spirit working in their life. His very love. But they chose not to. A beautiful picture about how a church ought to be is found in the church of Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. 
says we ought always to give thanks to God for you brethren and you know what Paul doesn't normally do this but boy he's very grateful for these people as is only fitting he says because your faith is greatly enlarged this was a church that was well that was not well taught it grew up overnight it was a very precious group of people and the love of each one of you toward one another listen to this grows even greater wouldn't that be awesome in five years from now in the church at Hoffmantown and other churches that are, that are watching us on television when they turn on our program? Wouldn't it be wonderful if in five years we'd be five times or 50 times or 500 times the love that you see today? It would enlarge and enlarge and enlarge and grow and grow and grow. It can only do that to the measure and the degree we are willing to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Then we experience this divine resource, and he produces his love in us. So the essence of this fruit, this particular fruit that the Holy Spirit alone can produce, is this love, the very love of God himself. Now, the word agape does not have the definite article in front of it. You say, Wayne, what does that mean? You throw these things up. No, let me tell you what it means. I've got my notebook up here. I've got my Bible up here. And If I just said I'm going to pick up a book, then I can pick up either one of them. I can look around and find something else. I can pick this one up. I mean, it doesn't matter. But if I put the definite article in front of it, it means I'm going to pick up the book, which means I better find out which one I'm supposed to be picking up. It identifies something. But when you take that definite article out of the Greek and you leave it alone, it qualifies something. In other words, Paul is not defining. He's not trying to define the, the source of this because we know it's the Holy Spirit. He's trying to show what this love is all about. That's why he puts eight characteristics that follow it that, that manifest and help us understand better what this love is all about. How do you know you're experiencing the love of God? Well, I, I love going to my brother and whatever. No, no. All these other things have to be built into that so that we can understand what this love really is. He wants to qualify the essence of God's love within a believer. So he lists for us the characteristics that will be present when the love of God is manifest in our lives. Now again, you cannot separate these characteristics from this love. They form a cluster. If you think you've got this love and one of them is missing, I'm telling you, you can never take out an attribute of God. This is his character. They all have to be there at the same time. So let's look now at the, the inward effectiveness of this love. We've seen the essence of the, of the fruit is love. Now let's look at the inward effectiveness of God's love. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next two? Joy. And what's the next one? Peace. By the way, from time to time we put scriptures on the screens. And I've just gotten convicted that I believe we need to be looking in our Bibles. And I want you to, you know, it would be awesome to, for you to just to read it and go home and not have to even bring your Bible. But I just want you to be in your Bible. That's my heart, folks. Take this book. This book is a part of your life. It's spiritual food. And when I say something to you, it's one thing. But when you read it in God's Word, you don't have to deal with me anymore. You're now dealing with Him. So bring your Bible and look in the Bible when we turn to different Scriptures because it, it'll speak to your heart. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Joy and peace reflect the inward effectiveness of God's love in us. The Greek word for joy is the word kara. Kara. It's the word for deep abiding 
and inner rejoicing. <laughs> it's a beautiful word. It's completely independent of outward circumstances. Now listen to me. It rests totally in God's sovereign control. It's the joy that Jesus himself had when he was here on this earth. Even though people would want to shame him and spit on him, and if you've ever read 1 Peter chapter 2, they reviled him, but he did not revile back. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. It's that inner joy that he had knowing his father and that, that the situation was in control. In fact, he refers to this particular joy as my joy two times in the New Testament. It's not just a, a frivolous quality. It's who he is. Once when he had just told his disciples how to bear fruit in John 15, which was, and he said the only way to bear fruit is to abide in the vine and to allow his words to abide in them. And then he said, then, then you can produce fruit. The branch can produce fruit not of itself. It has to be abiding in the vine. And then in verse 11 of John 15, he says these words. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy. I love those words. It's not just joy. It's my joy. His joy. It's who he's, we're experiencing. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, our joy is never made full until we're experiencing his joy. And that's what he wants. And he says, if you'll abide in me as my word, and let my words abide in you, you will produce, you will produce much fruit. It's interesting that persecution seems to be the environment in which this marvelous characteristic of his love is manifested. In his high priestly prayer, again in John 17, Jesus asked his Father to give us his joy knowing that we would be hated in this world. By the way, do you know we're hated in this world? And it's not us, it's Christ that lives in us. They hated him, they're going to hate us. And it says in John 17, 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And the very next verse tells why. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. No, Father, don't do that. But to keep them from the evil one. And so just in the implication here, the joy seems to be made even more manifest when the world is shaming you and when the world is reviling you and when you're being persecuted and you run to him and you bow before him and you surrender to him and you say, God, I want to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit of God produces the character of Christ and he gives you a love even for the people that are persecuting you but gives you an inner, deep inner sense of well-being knowing that the situation is under control. When his love is present, it's with his joy that enables us to pay whatever price that is necessary for the sake of others, regardless of how they treat us. Years ago, when I first started pastoring, I pastored in, in uh, a southern state. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that alone, because you're probably kin to half of them. And I, when I, my, my honeymoon with that church was on the way down there. I got there, and I tell you what, it was hell by the acre from day one. And I remember uh, about three weeks into it, I, I was topically preaching at that time. I didn't really know how to study. I was learning, and I'm still learning. But I didn't know how to study, and so I was using other people's messages. Heck, if it worked, I'd just, I'd just redo it, change the vocabulary, and preach it if it was solid. I didn't know any different. And one morning, I preached on David and Bathsheba. <laughs> 
That's okay. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get into the immoral part of it. I got into the fact that he was taking R&R &R and he should have been out in battle. And that's when all the problems happened in his life. And I did not know that in the church there was a very prominent man who was having an affair with another woman in the church that was not his wife. And, and uh, everybody knew it, but I didn't. Nobody bothered to tell me about it. He's sitting in the service that day, and I'm talking about <laughs> David committing immorality. <laughs> oh, gosh. And so three days later, after I preached that message, I get a phone call in the office. And I answered the phone. I said, hello. He said, preacher. Well, you can tell people that have been walking with God. It's just the countenance on their face, the, the joy in their voice. And he said, preacher. And I said, yes, sir. He said, get off my back. I said, do what? I mean, I didn't even know what he's talking about. And he said, you know that message you preached Sunday? He said, you know good and well you were referring that at me, and you were throwing jabs at me. He said, I want you to know I've got peace with God with what I'm doing. You better get off my back. Do you understand me? <laughs> well, back in those days, I didn't know what it meant to really walk in the Spirit. <laughs> maybe if the Spirit had been in charge of my life, maybe I would have done this anyway. When I, finally, he got quiet enough, and I said, would you just be quiet for a second? I said, if you're through, just shut up. I got something to say to you. I told him on the phone, I said, I'm not afraid of you or anybody like you in this town. You spread the word. You understand me? Bam, he hung up the phone. That's my first three weeks I was there. I was really excited. <laughs> I mean, it went downhill from that point. Every time I got in the pulpit, I'd be chasing something and trying to shoot them down. If I found a problem during the week, I'd nail it on Sunday. And I had a little shack outside behind my house, a little shack, and they, made it, they fixed it up and made a little apartment out of it and a place for me to study. Everybody called it the shack out back. And I remember many mornings being out there after I did a radio broadcast, I remember just being so overwhelmed by the way people were. And I just got down on my face and prone on, on the floor, and I'd just cry out to my Lord. And every single time, God would so tenderize my heart with a love for even that man who treated me that way, that even with the love came a joy and a sense of well-being that when I got up off my knees and I walked outside that place, God had already given me the victory. And I didn't even understand all the terminology of what we're talking about right here in Galatians chapter 5. Do we understand that? Do we understand that all of us are human beings and our humanity and our flesh is what we deal with every day? But if we'll just run to the presence of God, if we'll just go on our face before Him, God says, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming to me because I'm the only one that can help you. Nobody else can help you. Now, let me replace you. Let me fill your heart with a love that you didn't even know could be there for these people that are treating you that way. Let me give you a joy. It's my joy. Let me let you experience me. This is the characteristic of the life of Christ is it enabled him to go to the cross. This is, this is how he went to the cross, knowing that he was doing the best for you and me. He so loved us that he had a joy. He didn't look forward to the pain and the suffering and being separated from his father, but he had a joy knowing that he was doing what was spiritually right for you and I, and he was paying a price for us. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, this joy is his joy. 
And when he puts a love in your heart for the people that are sinners, the people that treat you wrongly, then he's also going to give you a joy in when you go to pay whatever price to help them spiritually. The love of Christ in us motivates to do what is necessary. He even gives us the discernment to know what that is. But in doing what is best, we have his joy in doing it. Oh, how the Galatians had walked away from this beautiful truth, this beautiful truth. With the love of Christ, they could have been loving each other, willing to to die if necessary for each other. But instead, in chapter 5, verse 15 of Galatians, he tells us they were biting and devouring one another. They had just walked away from what they could have experienced simply because they chose to do it their way. It's a shame. It's really a shame. Shame in my life. It's shame in all of our lives when we choose to do things our own way. We think we're doing the right thing many times. But we're not because the fruit is not all manifested in, 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 in our life. If we might be doing one of these things or two of these things and think that it's right, but no, unless all of them are there, then it's not the same that we're talking about. It is this joy that, in answer to the prayer of Jesus, caused the opposite effect. You see, the, the, the religious Jews, now I'm not talking about the Jewish people, they're precious people. I'm talking about the hardliners. They, they were so tough, and they, they brought such persecution against Paul and the other believers there. They intended for them to turn away and be defeated, but it worked exactly the opposite way. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 49, if you want to turn there, Acts 13, verse 49, it says, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Boy, they were tough. But verse 51 says, But they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And then in verse 52, And the disciples were continually, in the midst of all this, were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of His Spirit is love. And with that love, which is a a divine resolve to do what's best for your brother, no matter what it costs you. If it's, and then with it comes a joy that you've not known before. It's the joy. It's that inner understanding that God is in control. And then he adds the word peace, the word peace. These are, this is the effectiveness, the inward effectiveness of the fruit of God's character in our life. The word for peace is the word irene. It's an inward tranquility. Has nothing, it has to do with knowing you are in God's favor. It's a beautiful thing. It has to do with the fact that you know because you know because you know that you're doing God's will. It's a deep inward sense of well-being. It is his peace we're talking about. Not, not just peace, but his peace. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. My peace I give to you. Wow. The inner sense of well-being he had. Peace is the opposite of the word that means war. It's the opposite of the word that means uh, anxiety. There's no anxiety with this peace. It's the opposite of the word that means to fight or to strive with one another. He said, I give you my peace. There's no striving between me and you, Wayne. I'm going to give you a sense of well-being. I'm going to give you that sense of well-being to know that you're in the midst of my will. I have given you a discernment. I have enabled you to meet the need of, of, of your brother. I've given you a joy that is, is beyond anything you've ever experienced. And within it is a deep, deep-seated sense of well-being 
You're being about what I've told you to do. Now, don't confuse this with the peace with God. Peace with God cannot be disturbed. You have it the moment you get saved, and nobody can ever take it away from you. That's Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about that peace. That peace cannot be disturbed. It's, it's a relationship that's been bonded. There's no conflict between you and God. But what Paul's talking about is the peace of God. There's a difference with the peace with God and the peace of God. The peace of God can be disturbed. If we're not walking by the Spirit, we don't have it. Walk by the Spirit is when, when we experience that peace of God. This, this peace Paul describes in Philippians 4, verse 7. He says, and the peace of God. If you'll think on these things, he goes on to say, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds with Christ Jesus. Matter of fact, Colossians says it's like a referee. I like that terminology because I played sports. When that peace is not there, the whistle's blown. Technical fouls called. Something's missing in my life. I'm not experiencing Jesus right here. Whatever I'm experiencing is not him. It's my flesh. God's peace is a characteristic of his love. It's the deep inner sense of his well-being. Now, let's see how all this fits. God's love motivates us with a discernment, first of all, to know what the need is. Then he motivates us with a deep resolve to go and meet that need. And in going and meeting that need, whatever it cost us, that we're filled with an inner rejoicing. Oh, it's just so exciting to be about the things that God is about. But it also, married with that, is a deep sense of well-being. We're doing what God wants us to do. With the inner joy and the peace that goes with it. You see, many times we'll go to somebody and think we know their need, but if the joy is not there... And the peace is not there. Now, remember, there are other six other things that also have to be there to make certain we understand this. Kindness, gentleness, patience. All those other things have to be there because we're talking about the character of Christ. And again, you can't separate any of his attributes at any time. Oh, how God's love is so inwardly effective. I wonder this morning if you're being affected by God's love deep within you see, the flesh criticizes, whereas the spirit seeks to reconcile. The spirit, spirit seeks to restore. You say, Wayne, give me a good example of that. Well, if you'll just hang on, we're going to get to chapter 6 this soon. And he's going to give you all the examples you're going to ever want. When you see your brother in a sin, go to him. Bear ye one another's burdens. He begins to help you understand how this flesh is itself out. Now, let's just apply this this morning. What is your inward motivation toward your brother and sister in Christ? What is it? Right now, if you could draw a circle around yourself, what would you say toward your... Now, listen, I'm not talking about the ones you like. <laughs> we have a tendency to do that. Oh, I like... Oh, shoot, that's great. No, think of the ones that are, that are, that are unnerving you. Think of the ones that, are, that you don't like. You say, what is your inward motivation towards them as you think about them this morning? And then secondly... Do you sense the deep desire to do for them what you believe you have discerned is their greatest spiritual need? And then, is there joy associated with this desire? Is it an inner joy that God gives to you? 
And is there a deep inner peace and a sense of well-being to know that this is God's will and you're being about what God wants in your life? That's that's bottom line of what Paul's talking about. Isn't it great? Isn't it awesome to walk by the Spirit and begin to experience Him? And when we experience Him, look what happens. We get to experience each other. All of a sudden, it's no longer you and me, it's us. Isn't that awesome? And we begin to see each other's needs and we help each other. And by the way, nobody has arrived. And this is one of the beautiful things that this love does. It so, it so melts you down that when you even approach a brother, you don't approach him as somebody who's gotten beyond him. Oh, no. You just want to take God's hand and his hand and put them together. And you have that deep inner sense of well-being and, and that deep rejoicing in your heart. Let me just flesh it out for you. When I went to Chattanooga, there is a, I, think, I told you this illustration about 18 months ago, but I'm certain you really remember it. Okay, so let me tell it again to you. When I went to uh, Chattanooga, I discovered something. There's a school for mean women, and they train them and send them wherever I pastor. <laughs> they do. Now, you, you give me five men, I can whip five men, or I can hurt them bad before they take me down. But you get a mean woman, what you going to do? Now, I know Elijah ran from Jezebel. When, he, when I got there, how many of you know what the WMU is in here? Probably in this service, more people know it than any other service. I've asked last night, only three people knew. It's the Women's what? Missionary Union. It's a great organization. But it took me years because for some odd reason, the, the bad ones I, I seem to inherit. And it took me years to realize it wasn't the Women's Military Union. When I first got to Chattanooga, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. God is my witness. When I walked in there, a little lady walked up to me. And she said, I'll tell you one thing, preacher. <laughs> Another one of these folks walking by the Spirit. And she said, I'll tell you one thing. I said, what's that? She said, I don't care what you do in this church. You leave us alone. We're going to do what we've always done, whether you like it or not. You hear me? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Well, every year, she had hit me with Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. Lottie Moon is our, we're going to have that this Christmas. It'll be an offering. If you don't know what it is, it's pure missions, pure missions overseas. And then at Easter time, you have the home mission offering, which is Annie Armstrong, which goes to pure missions within our state, with our, with all, actually in our whole nation, within our national boundaries. And so every year she'd hit me, Rachel, you better get in that pulpit. You better hit the people hard or we'll never get our goal this year. Every year, oh, every year. You know, I, I want to let you know something. When I come in here to preach on Sundays or anytime, I am so single-minded and so focused, you can tell me something and I will not remember it 30 seconds later because my mind is fixed on where I'm going to speak. And I, for, I kept forgetting it every year. And Annie Armstrong, preacher, preacher. Finally, one year, it did, I preached a message in Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> and it was on have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, esteem others as more, high, as more highly than yourself. Even those you don't like, I hate that scripture. No, I don't. I mean, I just, I, I just struggle with it. <laughs> I don't hate it. I just struggle with it. Well, I preached on that message, and I thought I did a pretty good job. Brought out Jesus as the example, and then Paul, and then Timothy, and Epaphroditus when outlined the chapter. And I stepped off the pulpit and would step down, and here she comes. Boy, steam coming out of her ear. <laughs> and you know, this is the tough part. I mean, don't ever hit a preacher right after he's preached. Let me just give you a little bit of, of advice. Leave them alone. Because right after you preach is the lowest emotional moment you'll ever have. And if you come up and just hit him, he, he may, depending on his temperament, hit you back. <laughs> and she walked up to me and she said, Preacher! And I said, What? 
we're not doing good here. There's not a lot of unity of the Spirit going here. And she said, you didn't mention the goal. We'll never reach that. And I said, what is your goal this year? She said, $1,350. Now, what I had to say to her was really good, but in the Spirit, it would have been helpful. (laughs) The way I said it was totally of the flesh. I mean, I had a good point. My point was this. I was going to say, why do you keep putting goals on God? Why don't you let God put his goals on you? Why don't you just get before him and let him do what he wants to do instead of always telling him what you're going to do? I said, what was it last year? She said, $1,300. And it's $1,350 this year. And here's what came out of my mouth. (laughs) Well, do you think God can afford 50 more dollars this year? That's not good. That was not good. (laughs) That came out totally wrong. Totally wrong. Why? Because my flesh is in control. Well, boy, she just went, huh, and she walked out, and I went, huh, and I walked out that side. <laughs> this was back when Diane and I had two cars, and it was so wonderful because uh, about, about that time God gave us two cars, and it was so wonderful because she could go home spiritual. <laughs> but I got in my car, cranked that thing up, and I was on the way home, and I'm thinking of the ways I'm going to burn this woman. I'm going to burn her. And I'm going to burn her biblically. If you're going to burn somebody, burn them biblically. And I thought of all the scriptures. I, and I was enjoying that. Have you ever had a pity party and noticed that nobody shows up but you? By the on my way home, all of a sudden, my message started coming back through the windshield. <laughs> ah, esteem others is higher than yourself. I'm like, oh, man. And so it just convicted me. And I said, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And it's like God said from heaven to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but it's like he said to heaven. Wayne, do you love this woman? I'm thinking, <laughs> no. And I told him, I said, I don't even like her. And it's like God said, do you want to make a choice here, Wayne? Would you like to choose? Thank you for being honest, by the way, Wayne. Would you like to say yes to me and let me create within you a love that you did not know could be possible? And I remember saying, yes, Lord, I do. I was weeping. And the first thing God said to me, he said, okay, I want you to pay the $1,350. <laughs> now, I knew that couldn't be God. That had to be the devil. Devil, get out of here. <laughs> I knew what he was saying. If you're so worried about your people being under a, a legalistic goal, then you pay it, get them out from under it, let me do what I want to do. So I got home, called the church treasurer, and he said, Wayne, you don't have that kind of money. I said, I know, but God's told me to do it. Now, you take two weeks of my salary or whatever it was, and you put it in there. And he did. It gave me such joy. It's incredible to me when you begin to sense the inner joy and the well-being, the peace that you've done God's will. And everybody doesn't have to understand that. Forget it. I mean, I'm not worried about everybody else between you and God. Well, Sunday morning, I got up and had the best time. I said, you know what? A miracle has happened. And it's a miracle when God tells me to give $1,350 that I don't have to (laughs) Annie Armstrong. I said, the goal has been reached. And boy, I watched that one little lady's mouth drop open. We gave more that year than ever given in the history of the church that Annie Armstrong offering because the people were free to do what God told them to do, not just $1,350. Well, this little lady walked up to me, and she patted me on the side. Now, she's tough. She's not going to say anything. She's a mean dude. I mean, that's nice for me, patting me on the side. Well, five years go by, and I learned to love that lady and her husband, came two of the greatest friends I had. Five years later, I'm in a prayer meeting at her house, and we're going around in a circle, and I'm supposed to finish the prayer. <laughs> Everybody prays but her, and I don't know what's happened to her. Is she going into a coma? Do I call 911? I mean, she, she just got quiet. She wouldn't say anything. And I don't know what, have you ever been in that situation? And you don't know what to do. You're going to pray? You want me to pray? You know, she didn't pray. 
And finally, she took her elbow and went, <coughs> and hit me in the side. Went, <coughs> she said, pray. <laughs> so I prayed. When I finished praying, we got up, and she said, Wayne, I need to talk to you. Wasn't, wasn't preacher anymore. It was, Wayne, I need to talk to you. And I said, sure. We walked into another room. She's in her 70s. And she said, Wayne, I just want you to know that God's convicted me. I couldn't pray until I asked you to forgive me. I said, is that right? I thought all this was over with. And she said, I've asked God to forgive me, but I've been too proud and too stubborn to ask you to forgive me. And she said, I, I know when you first came, I was the biggest problem you had in this church. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> but she said to me, she said, Wayne, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And I said, Helen, I did that five years ago. And she put her arms around me, a little bitty thing, and I hugged her. And she said, I love you, big boy. And I said, I love you, Helen. And you know what? If you came to my church after that and gave me any lip at all, I had a little woman run you out of town, buddy. She's on my side now. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. That is exactly what he's talking about. You see, God will create within us a love even for the people that we don't even like. And we'll do whatever it costs us in his power to meet their spiritual need with a joy unspeakable and a peace that passes all understanding. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.